This is Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 47, 2023 Outlook, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Ben Reitzis, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Dan Belton, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our outlook for U.S. and Canadian rates, IG credit, and foreign exchange in 2023 as the Fed remains committed to containing inflation and the prior rate hikes begin to transmit into the economy. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The main market themes of 2022 included the Fed recharacterizing inflation from transitory to problematic and kicking off an aggressive tightening campaign, resulting in what is widely expected to be a 425 basis point move higher in Fed funds by the end of this year. Recent messaging has consistently indicated that about another 50 basis points is likely to come early in the new year followed by a lengthy period of higher for longer as the Fed waits for the rate hikes to transmit into the economy. As the Fed funds rate continues to move higher, the curve inversion in twos tens should deepen and persist until the market begins to price a slowing economy and decelerating inflation, resulting in a bull steepener. The timing of the bull steepener will be one of the main narratives in U.S. rates in the second half of 2023, alongside gauging the Fed's reaction function to a slowing economy and how this impacts credit spreads and foreign exchange. So. We're going to mix it up a little bit this month by bringing our rapid fire outlook to the beginning of this podcast. Let's start with Ian Linging and Ben Jeffrey. Base case scenario, 50 basis points in December, followed by two quarter point moves in February and March. And our year in forecast for 10 years in 2023 is 3%. And the way in which that might be wrong is inflation remains too high throughout the first quarter, which introduces the risk of May and or June rate hikes and delays the steepening of the curve. On the other side, if the unemployment rate shoots up and the labor market deteriorates too quickly, then maybe we have to contemplate a March hike, and that brings the steepening sooner rather than later. Dan Kreider. The risk-reward for credit in 2023 favors wider. While there are scenarios where spreads tighten, the magnitude would not be very large. Well, on the other hand, we could see significant widening if some of the tail risks are realized. Dan Belton. Supply in 2023 will likely resemble that of 2022, but in January, we will be looking for potential firming in demand, which could entice some new issuance from borrowers who have been deterred from supply. Ben Reitzes. Rate hikes aren't done yet. Expect at least one more rate hike in 2023 before a lengthy pause from the bank. Depending on how inflation evolves, we could see more hikes through the course of the year. However, if inflation slows as we expect, there should be opportunities for curve steepeners to be put on as we approach the middle of the year. Greg Anderson. Dollar index uh, up maybe a percent in the first quarter, flat in Q2, down 4% in the second half of the year. 
Dollar Canada, 135-ish, first quarter, 134 mid-year, 129, end of 2023. Best way to trade that right now, I would tell you, long cat against MEX. Uh, if you can get that pair somewhere below 1450, uh, looking for a move up to around 16. Stephen Gallo. So the euro is still fundamentally cheap to the dollar, and I expect the single currency to recover more lost ground versus the greenback next year. I think 110 in euro dollar is achievable by Q3, possibly sooner, but only if a lot of things go right uh, for Europe. Um, however, I'm very cautious about the next three months and the first quarter of 2023, given the prospect for sticky inflation in Europe, winter weather uncertainty, and the overhang from the energy crisis. So with a three-month investment horizon, I'd rather be a buyer of your dollar in the 1 to 103 range rather than at 105. Thank you for that lightning round. Let's get into the weeds of our 2023 outlook. Ian, the Treasury market remains highly volatile as pricing grapples with the level of the terminal rate and now more importantly, perhaps, the length that the Fed will be willing or able to hold the terminal rate high in its quest to fight inflation. So Ian, what does that mean for your outlook for U.S. Treasury rates and the yield curve? Well, Margaret, I think that is precisely the question in the Treasury market at the moment, and that is how long will the Fed need to keep terminal in place to achieve its goal of a 2% inflation target? Now, admittedly, there has been a reasonable amount of discussion around the appropriateness of a 2% inflation target or a potentially higher number, whether that is 25 or 3%. Now, our stance has been that that debate is an interesting one, and eventually the Fed might ultimately revise higher their inflation target, but they can't do it this cycle simply for credibility reasons. Now, that implies that the Fed is going to make sure that inflation is trending back toward that 2% target over the course of the next stage of the cycle. So we're anticipating a 50 basis point rate hike when the FOMC meets next week, followed by another two hikes at a minimum, but of the smaller size of 25 basis points each. So from here, that implies a minimum of an additional 100 basis points of tightening to achieve the endpoint of the FOMC's hiking campaign. And when we think about how that translates to nominal yields in the treasury market, it's important to keep in mind that the market is currently functioning under the narrative that effective Fed funds should serve as a floor for yields, particularly in the front end of the curve. Now, to some extent, we're on board with that, certainly for twos, but as we've recently seen 10-year yields drop below 3.5%, it's abundantly clear that effective Fed funds will not function as a floor for 10-year yields. Now, as we project into 2023, our year-end call for 10-year yields next year is 3%. While we might see an upward trajectory for rates in the first quarter, ultimately there will be a drift lower as the extent of the economic damage done by the Fed's hiking thus far finally begins to work its way through the system. We're notably 
more bearish on the front end of the market and expect that two-year yields will end Q1 of 2023 at roughly 4.4 or 4.5%. And it's not until we're at the end of 2023 where we see two-year yields back below 350 and the overall curve continuing to march out of the depths of the inversion. For context, we still see a path forward that brings twos, tens to negative 100 basis points before a broader base shift in momentum occurs. And really, Ian, to me, what this suggests is that in terms of the next big trade to watch for in treasuries in 2023, the trade itself is fairly intuitive as we approach the end of a tightening cycle, and that is the large bull steepening of the curve that you touched on. Now, what is still highly uncertain is just when will be the opportune time to start scaling into some of those steepener positions, and more specifically, what parts of the curve are going to steepen first, and which ones will be a bit later to the party. So our base case scenario, as you just laid out, is two additional 25 basis point hikes in February and March, followed by a transition from a Fed messaging perspective to a more aggressive push back against the market that's going to try and pull forward rate cut pricing and begin that steepening of the curve. In this scenario, as terminal is achieved, we may get that knee-jerk steepening in twos tens, but ultimately it's going to be the Fed that continues to push out the timeline the market should expect rate cuts that will ultimately give a reflattening impulse, call it around the middle end part of the second quarter, that would be the more opportune time to begin getting into those twos tens steepeners. Now as for the intermediate part of the curve, call it fives tens or fives thirties, the timeline there is a bit more accelerated, just given the fact that the market's already reached the point when the realities of more hikes now are going to continue to narrow the path to a soft landing and ultimately necessitate more cuts later. So the belly of the curve stands to benefit more. That means that 5s, 10s, or 5s, 30s steepeners should be on the radar a bit earlier in the year than the 2s, 10s one. That being the base case, turning to what we'll call the second most likely outcome is if inflation remains stubbornly high and the labor market continues to perform very well throughout the entirety of the first quarter and into the second quarter. So while yes, OER begins moderating, it doesn't come off as quickly as the Fed would otherwise like to see. And this means that Powell will need to leave the door open to an even higher terminal rate. Maybe that takes the form of a 50 basis point hike in February or even additional 25 basis point moves in May and June. The same underlying logic of our base case in this situation holds, but the timeline changes. In this case, we would push everything out by roughly a quarter, and this would point to a later in the second quarter or even third quarter bigger re-steepening of the twos tens curve. Finally, and on the flip side, is what we'll say is the least likely scenario, but still one worth considering as we watch the economic data come in in the early part of 2023, and that's the dovish case. The dovish case would be driven by a jobs market that deteriorates far more quickly, an unemployment rate that is gaining too fast for comfort in the early part of next year, and overall job gains that slow materially. In this scenario, the likelihood of a 25 basis point hike in March would come into question, but more relevantly would be a shift in Fed rhetoric acknowledging that maybe at some point in 2023, a less restrictive stance of policy would be appropriate. In this scenario, a September, November, or December rate cut becomes far more likely, and that points to a 2s 10 steepening getting underway far earlier than in the other two scenarios. Call it before the end of the first quarter with the time to be in those intermediate steepeners already upon us, given that once rate cuts start, policy rates will probably be going even lower. 
Thanks for laying out the base case and the distribution of risks surrounding the dovish and hawkish scenarios. Going back to Ian, what other main narratives will play out in the Treasury market for 2023? Well, Margaret, there will be a variety of narratives to be sure, but the two primary ones that we're currently focused on is gauging whether or not the FOMC has overshot the mark in tightening and we find ourselves in a hard landing scenario. And the second one being how the Fed responds to the potential for having overshot. So in the first case, what the market will spend the bulk of the year doing, we suspect, is gauging the extent of the fallout from the prior rate hikes and with real yields as high as they have been, contemplating the extent of excess demand destruction that has occurred. The first and most obvious way in which the market will contemplate this is GDP. Now, when we look at prior recessions, on average, excluding 2020, when the U.S. economy is in a recession, the three-month annualized rate of real GDP is negative 3%. So in the event that the real economy is slowing in the second and third quarters of next year, but isn't declining by more than 3%, we anticipate that the Fed can still characterize that as a soft landing, assuming that the unemployment rate hasn't materially moved above their target for next year of 4.4%. The second aspect is how quickly the unemployment rate increases. The Fed's projections suggest that we'll get to the mid-4% range and hold that throughout 2023 and 2024. In the event that we very quickly get above 4.5%, that becomes problematic for the Fed and feeds into the hard landing narrative. The second prevailing narrative will be How does the Fed respond in the event that the market believes that they have over-tightened? Our take is that they will not be as quick to pivot dovishly as investors would like to see. Moreover, if the more compelling evidence of over-tightening doesn't emerge until the latter part of 2023, the Fed still has a compelling path to claim victory on the fight against inflation while needing to deliver fine-tuning rate cuts in 2024. Ian, I want to focus on the point you just made about the Fed's response function to a slowing economy being different this time around because it really forms the backbone for our view on credit into 2023. From a high level, our operating thesis for credit in the new year is that spreads should trade at a higher range than we've seen in the recent historical experience as a result of the differing Fed reaction function. And to talk about what that means for spreads in the new year, it's important to focus on where we are in the spread markets now after we just had a significant 30 plus basis point rally in the last two months as the Fed slowed the pace of rate increases. After the rally, we're now sitting at about the midpoint in credit spreads for the year and at very important technical levels that have now held in three consecutive credit rallies. So for me, between now and the end of the year, it's going to be very important to see if these levels continue to hold. Because if they do, I think it represents an appropriate target for the lower bound in credit trading next year. And if that's true, then spreads will likely widen next year, even if the magnitude of widening is not going to be large. It's difficult to see a scenario where spreads can continue to narrow to levels that we saw in 2021 that came alongside the most accommodative monetary and fiscal policy we've ever seen. And that's to say nothing of the significant risks that continue to face the economy, namely a stagflationary scenario or one where we see a significant recession as a result of Fed over-tightening. I also want to talk about what has driven credit in 2022, because for essentially all year, it's been inflation and the Fed's actions to fight inflation that have driven credit. And that's not what we've typically seen. 
So while I think that trade could continue to hold in the, in the weeks ahead, and we could see a relatively strong Q1 for credit, ultimately, the market will likely refocus on the traditional drivers of credit spreads, which are corporate earnings and balance sheet fundamentals. And to that point, we have started to see a deterioration in corporate fundamentals in the past few months. Since October, we've seen the upgrade-downgrade ratio in the corporate space turn negative for the first time since the pandemic. And those fears will only continue to grow alongside a Fed-manufactured slowing in the economy. So from a high level, we're looking for credit spreads to start turning wider towards the middle of the year as credit concerns grow. And Two other factors that are likely to drive wider credit spreads in 2023. First is liquidity, which was a significant story in 2022. It's unlikely to get much better as the Fed holds rates in restricted territory for the foreseeable future as QT continues to unfold. And it's worth mentioning here that we're likely to have a significant debt ceiling showdown that's going to unfold over the first half of 2023. And that has exacerbating impacts on liquidity withdrawals alongside QT that could further challenge liquidity conditions. The other factor that could influence spreads a little bit wider next year is the path of supply. Corporate supply in 2022 was historically light. And while we're not expecting a significant increase in corporate supply in 2023, it's likely that we see at least some increase that could put additional upward pressure on credit spreads. Yeah, Dan, so just to put some numbers around it, this year we'll end up seeing about $1.2 to $1.25 trillion in gross issuance. And that's lighter than 2020 and 2021 by a significant margin. It's also well below what we were expecting to see in terms of gross issuance this year. The main reason that we've seen such light supply this year is higher borrowing costs. Higher borrowing costs, of course, both disincentivize corporate leverage, and they also lead to much less refinancing activity. And both of those have driven much more calm primary markets this year. We've also seen heightened risk aversion, which has deterred some issuance this year. We've seen elevated new issue concessions, and that has persisted for the vast majority of this year. So moving into 2023, we're forecasting a slight increase. Like you mentioned, we're calling for between $1.25 and $1.3 trillion in supply. So just about a 4% increase from what we'll end up seeing this year. We're expecting to see liability management remain light due to relatively higher interest rates prevailing for much of the next year. And in terms of net issuance, we're forecasting about $385 billion, a decent increase over this year's $360 billion. But like you mentioned, there are risks to heavier supply even than our forecasts indicate. And the first risk to higher supply is an economic downturn, which would correspond with drying up of corporate revenue streams. And that would be particularly impactful as it relates to issuance in the current environment, given that corporate cash holdings are now at cycle lows after increasing over much of 2020 and into 2021. They've fallen now for about two straight years and sit near the lows that we saw in 2019. So any economic downturn would likely coincide with corporations needing to shore up their cash holdings. And then the second, I talked already about risk aversion. We've seen a firming in primary market execution levels in November. Of course, we'll see very light issuance over December, so we'll have to wait to see if that is extended into January. But I think if we do see continued improvement in primary market execution levels, we could see the return of some issuers that have been deterred from borrowing over much of 2022, and that could lead to heavier supply than we're expecting. Altogether, given these risks facing the corporate market, I think year-on-year year spreads likely won't end the year much. Change will likely be just slightly wider than we are now at the end of 2023. But there's likely to be a pretty wide range in credit. This year, we saw a 75 basis point range in credit spreads, which is not that far from the historical average. It's a little bit elevated. And given the volatility of the year, that's what we'd expect. And I think volatility is going to continue to reign next year. So if we look at 
current spread levels is an appropriate target for the lower bounding credit in 2023. And we expect a 70 to 75 basis point range in credit spreads. That puts a target for the upper bounding credit around 200 or 205 basis points in 2023, which we would expect to hit to the middle of the year or into Q3 alongside deepening credit concerns before a rally back later in the year. Moving back to the rates market and, and specifically on Canada, uh, our, our base case outlook for, for 2023 is for the Bank of Canada's policy rate to peak in the first quarter of the year. I guess that depends on whether we get 25 or 50 basis points on December 7th, but uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of about 4.5% for policy rates is where we see them peaking. And then the Bank of Canada staying on hold for the rest of 2023 as they wait for higher rates to dampen demand sufficiently to pull down inflation. Uh, we're not expecting rate cuts until 2024. Uh, that's the base case, but the, uh, the the risk to our call, the net risks are likely skewed to the high side toward higher rates, particularly in the first half of 2023. Uh, there, there's a, a non-trivial probability that uh, inflation could be stickier than anticipated. Uh, that could prompt more hikes in the first half of the year. Interestingly, though, that then increases the risk of cuts toward the end of 2023 as, as the cumulative impact of hikes has the potential to really hammer the economy. So uh, even though we could get more hikes in the short term, that would actually mean uh, earlier potential cuts than would otherwise be expected. On the flip side, the more dovish outcome, which I would ascribe lower probability to, uh, would be if inflation slows faster than expected and, and, and policy rates maybe peak in, in the low fours or, or maybe even 4%. In addition, if the recession that we're forecasting for 2023 is deeper than expected, that could prompt earlier Bank of Canada rate cuts as well. But even then, probably not before the third quarter. This really all hinges on, on how inflation evolves over the coming months. We'll have a, a good idea on where inflation is really headed around the spring, where you get some, some pretty easy year-ago comparables. That should bring core and headline inflation down substantially. If inflation does not calm as expected in that period, then things do change notably for the Bank of Canada, and you could see materially higher rates. So from an FX perspective, this discussion of uh, a hard landing versus a, a soft landing next year is critical. And I would argue that for much of 2022, we spent our time worrying about uh, a hard landing at some point in the first half of 2023. And actually, a "Quote unquote technical recession, but one that uh, doesn't really, you know, push unemployment say say above five. I think that would be a, a relief for the FX market. And and as the FX market has priced that in 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 the fourth quarter this year, it has taken back uh, some of the upside seen earlier this year in, in the U.S. dollar. I do think that a, a little bit of that is a positioning head fake, and so in the first quarter." Uh, of 2023, I would expect, let's say, uh, flat or a tiny bit, one or two percent of uh, U.S. dollar upside. If the Fed pauses, as we have uh, laid out as our core scenario, somewhere around a five percent base rate, even if global growth in the first half of the year is is close to zero, you know that's probably good enough for the dollar to pause. And then ultimately turn lower in the second half of the year if we get an improvement in the global growth outlook as markets look forward to the prospect of uh, rate cuts coming in 2024 and, and 2025 and, and just uh, growth accelerating as we move further past the shocks of the Ukraine war and, and the pandemic. In terms of risk scenarios surrounding 
that uh, central view. I think in the first half of the year, those are more skewed towards a harder landing uh, and therefore a higher dollar. And I think that uh, has more likelihood than the soft landing and lower dollar in the first half of the year. For uh, the second half of the year, if we had a situation where we had the Fed tightening well beyond five and then reversing course and, and cutting, let's say, late in the year or early in 2024, what would that do for the greenback? Probably a spike through uh, this year's high and then a hard reversal at some point in, in the fourth quarter. But um, the spike probably would not reach its top until after the Fed's first cut. Greg, I'd echo your comments about the potential for a rocky first half of the year. And I think this is now a good time to talk about Europe and Eurodollar because there's a lot going on there, even after a very active year in 2022. So my base case is 105 in Eurodollar in three months, which is basically unchanged from where it is today, and 110 from around Q3 onwards into year end. Important to point out, though, that with the euro still cheap to the US dollar versus its long run average, there is a moderate risk that 110 prints much sooner than Q3. But for that to happen, multiple factors have to move in the right direction for the euro. And I would narrow those factors down to, say, three. One is inflation. uh, Two is the weather. And three is, of course, the war in Ukraine. Given the level of uncertainty, I don't think it's a bad idea to be um, talking about bearish and bullish cases for, for Eurodollar. So I would classify the bearish case for Eurodollar as the currency pair back to parity or below before the end of Q1. And I think the recipe for that would probably be inflation proves stickier than expected, plateaus well north of 5%. We get below average temperatures remaining in place in northern and central Europe through January. For this bearish case, I think one of the things worth paying close attention to uh, is pay settlements across the public sector in Europe uh, and more heavily unionized portions of the private sector because eye-watering pay increases are one potential path to stubbornly high inflation. For the bullish case, I would classify that as Eurodollar to 110 before the end of Q1. And I would say that for this to happen, the recipe is inflation rates moderate rapidly on both sides of the Atlantic, assuming there's a high correlation between the two. And after this this coming cold snap that we're we're likely to get in in, uh, northern and central Europe, temperatures in that vicinity of Europe quickly turn mild again. So the weather stops being a problem. The war in Ukraine and further Russian sabotage of European energy supplies, they're the real wild cards in all of this for, for Eurodollar. So naturally, a Russian withdrawal from Ukraine would probably send Eurodollar from, say, 105 to 110, call it five big figures, probably with, within about a day. And if we saw a softening of Western sanctions on Russia, that could push Eurodollar even higher uh, very quickly. On the flip side, Further Russian sabotage of European energy supplies would exacerbate downside risks in Eurodollar uh, because it would make the scramble to replenish gas storage next spring even more difficult than it's likely to be. Uh, And going back to what Ben was saying before, if that coincides with a lack of evidence that inflation is moderating quickly around the springtime, uh, you could get a pretty nasty uh, downdraft in Eurodollar, I think. 
Thank you, Stephen. So we've covered a lot of territory today. So let's conclude with a rapid fire round table. Ian Linging and Ben Jeffrey. Base case scenario, 50 basis points in December, followed by two quarter point moves in February and March. And our year in forecast for 10 years in 2023 is 3%. And the way in which that might be wrong is inflation remains too high throughout the first quarter, which introduces the risk of May and or June rate hikes and delays the steepening of the curve. On the other side, if the unemployment rate shoots up and the labor market deteriorates too quickly, then maybe we have to contemplate a March hike, and that brings the steepening sooner rather than later. Dan Kreider. The risk-reward for credit in 2023 favors wider. While there are scenarios where spreads tighten, the magnitude would not be very large. Well, on the other hand, we could see significant widening if some of the tail risks are realized. Dan Belton. Supply in 2023 will likely resemble that of 2022, but in January, we will be looking for potential firming in demand, which could entice some new issuance from borrowers who have been deterred from supply. Ben writes us. Rate hikes aren't done yet. Expect at least one more rate hike in 2023 before a lengthy pause from the bank. Depending on how inflation evolves, we could see more hikes through the course of the year. However, if inflation slows as we expect, there should be opportunities for curve steepeners to be put on as we approach the middle of the year. Greg Anderson. Dollar index uh, up maybe a percent in the first quarter, flat in Q2, down 4% in the second half of the year. Dollar Canada 135-ish first quarter, 134 mid-year, 129 end of 2023. Best way to trade that right now, I would tell you, long cat against MEX. Uh, if you can get that pair somewhere below 1450, uh, looking for a move up to around 16. Stephen Gallo. So the euro is still fundamentally cheap to the dollar, and I expect the single currency to recover more lost ground versus the greenback next year. I think 110 in euro dollar is achievable by Q3, possibly sooner, but only if a lot of things go right uh, for Europe. Um, however, I'm very cautious about the next three months and the first quarter of 2023, given the prospect for sticky inflation in Europe, winter weather uncertainty, and the overhang from the energy crisis. So with a three-month investment horizon, I'd rather be a buyer of euro dollar in the 1 to 103 range rather than at 105. Okay, and that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 47, 2023 Outlook. As always, please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macro horizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.